In episode 49 of Mosin at Large, favorite camera apps and what you're using your camera for. More on the word blind as a pejorative. Blindness and mental health. iOS 14 has gone into public beta. Are you testing it yet? And if so, how's it working out for you? Mosin at Large you're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. And because this podcast is so long, we've had so many good listener contributions once again, I have decided we will do another midweek extra of Mosin at Large in the coming week. That could be the first chance that you get to receive a podcast from our potential new podcast host. I'll talk to you about that in just a moment. So we will have the interviews with Judy Dixon about her new camera-related book for National Braille Press and Marco Salsiccia about audio description in a midweek extra, probably about Wednesday US time. We will publish that. Nice to be back with you for another week. I hope everything is okay where you are. I know that we're still in some very difficult times for many people, and I do want to give a shout-out to friends and neighbours across the Tasman in the Australian state of Victoria where they've had to go back into lockdown. So we're wishing you all the very best, and hopefully that will do the job, and Australia, or Victoria in particular, will be able to get back on track. So everything crossed, and we're wishing you guys nothing but the best in getting that thing back under control. Here in New Zealand, we are very fortunate. We still don't have any community transmission. We did have a bit of a scary situation a few days ago where somebody escaped Escaped from Quarantine. It sounds like the name of an exciting movie. Escape from Quarantine. And he hooned on off to the supermarket, and that's caused a lot of consternation that somebody would be so inconsiderate as to do that. But also people are saying, well, how was that allowed to happen? You know, we thought these quarantine facilities were well guarded. So we have everything crossed. Uh, The incubation period is 14 days, of course. So it takes a while to know 
about whether these things have had an effect and whether we got any community transmission. But so far, we do not. Any cases are those from people coming in back to New Zealand, New Zealanders who are coming home, and we have no community transmission at the moment. So we too have everything crossed. Before we get into some talking points today that I'd love to hear your opinions on, I do have a bit of housekeeping, as they say, or administrivia, you know, that sort of thing. One of my biggest technological strengths and weaknesses is that I love to play with stuff. Some people interpret this as inconsistency, but I like to think of it as open-mindedness, that just because one piece of technology works for you at one moment, it doesn't mean that another piece of technology hasn't come along since you last looked, or that something that you dismissed a couple of years ago hasn't evolved to be better than something you're using. So you get the idea. Well, I have to say that all the kind people who listen to this show every week have given me a bit of dilemma, and that is that really I feel like I have outgrown the particular podcast hosting plan that we currently have for Mosin at Large. And that caused me to think, well, do I just throw more money at the existing podcast host that I use, which is certainly the easiest option from a technical standpoint, or is this an opportunity to revisit the podcast hosting space, see what's out there at the moment, and just confirm that I'm in the right place, or if I'm not, to make a change. And I'm about 99% decided that I am going to make a change. I have done extensive over the last few weeks, extensive, I tell you, looking at almost every common podcast hosting option that is available today. Unfortunately, I get a bit geeky and obsessive about this sort of thing, as many people who've heard me over the years will know. So I now feel like I really understand in quite a deep way all of the offerings of all of the services offering podcast hosting that tend to be usually recommended and a couple that are not. So I've come to a decision to make a change. And after this show is published, I will start doing that immediately to give it a week to bed down. What this means for you is hopefully nothing. When you are a podcaster and you make a change to the service that hosts you, there is actually a protocol in place using what they call a 301 redirect. So if your new podcast host is any good, what should happen is that they will import all your episodes for you And then your old provider, if it's ethical and well-behaved, and you should definitely check whether that's the case before you even go there, they should implement for you a redirect of your old feed to the new one. Then you have to hope that the podcast clients that your listeners are using will respect that well-established protocol and subscribe you to the new place. And you just don't even know that it's happened. Now, I do have to check about a couple of blindness-specific devices to see if they are honoring this protocol. But if they are not, I will make sure that we do all we can to take care of it. However, if you do not get Mosin at Large next weekend, you can assume that for whatever reason, your old podcast client has not made the jump in which case I would recommend unsubscribing from the podcast, searching for it again, and then resubscribing. But in the vast majority of cases, particularly if you're using a reliable podcast client like Apple Podcasts or Overcasts or Castro, you will not need to do that. 
If you are using a podcast client where you check in the RSS feed yourself, then I will be publishing the new RSS feed on the mosin.org website in the podcast section within about 24 or 48 hours of this episode being published. My stats indicate that most people are listening on iPhones and streams, and we should be able to take care of most of that. I will also publish the new RSS feed to the Mosin at Large media email list. So if you want this feed and you're not subscribed to our media list yet, you can send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org, and I will also send it there. So I do apologize if there's any disruption. I expect it will be minimal. I'll do everything I can to keep it to a minimum, and I don't intend to change hosts too often, but I have a bunch of really good reasons for doing it. If this all works out, and if we make it to our new host in time for next week's episode, and if that episode goes all right, then I will tell you where we've switched and why we've switched and why I have chosen this host. And we'll do a bit of a review of some of the common podcast hosting options out there in case you are considering starting a podcast and why I've chosen the one that I have. Or perhaps you are in the market to change your podcast host if you are a podcaster at the moment. As ever, you have given us a range of great topics to talk about today, and thank you for the contributions that we have received. And I thought it would be interesting to get your experiences about being a blind person or maybe a person with a significant vision impairment who might in earlier times have been precluded from using a camera who now uses one on a regular basis, if that's what you do. If you don't use your smartphone's camera, And I mean, this could equally apply to those of you who use Android as well. Why is that? Is there a reason why, even though technology companies have done so much to try and make their cameras accessible, you still don't feel comfortable using it? Do you find it a frustrating experience? And if so, what would you like to see done to help you make the most of your camera? If you're using your camera, what are you doing with it? And it occurs to me that we've been using iPhones for so long now, we've had 11 years of accessible iPhones now, that we can get into a bit of reminiscing. One of the early apps that I remember using with some degree of success was a thing called VizWiz. Does anyone else remember VizWiz? And this was a crowdsourced thing where you would take a picture of something and you'd ask a question about it and various I think they were volunteers. It's possible they were paid through one of those crowdsourcing services like Mechanical Turk. But you would get a range of responses back about the picture that you took and the question that you asked. And it was run by a university, and that was pretty early on. Of course, TapTapC has been around a long time. But increasingly, many of us have become a bit more adventurous about taking photos. And the cameras have got smarter about telling us what's in the view of the camera. Because one of the things I've always struggled with, I suppose it speaks to me as a bit of a perfectionist, is I don't like putting stuff out there whose content I can't completely verify. You know what I mean? I can't tell whether it's a really bad picture or not. Are you a photographing ninja now? Are you photographing all sorts of things and putting it on social media or just flicking it along to friends? Do you have a system in place For example, before you post to social media, 
Do you have a friend? Look at a picture. Or maybe you send it to a service like Ira to have a look at the picture so that they can tell you whether the picture is okay. And of course, Ira can take control of your camera and take good quality pictures for you. And I know that's something that I really do appreciate about Ira, that you do have some assurance about the quality of the picture. So I'd like to know what you are using your camera for. Are you video conferencing with family members and making sure that you're in the view of the camera? Do you go out and just sort of snap random pics in public? How's it all working out for you? And what else needs to be done to give you greater confidence with the camera? Let me know about the apps you're using, the purposes to which you're putting the camera and anything else that you'd like to contribute. And of course, we will look forward to the discussion with Judy a little bit later in the show. But on the ball once again is Tristan Clare with a subject line called Click Go the Cameras. Tristan, fail. You should be singing this. I want to hear you singing Click Go the Cameras. Click, click, click. Because it has to be click because you're Australian. So you'd be saying click as opposed to click. Click, click, click. Anyway, hi, Jonathan, says Tristan. Hello, Tristan. Just in case the subject line doesn't give it away, she says, I'm chiming in on your topic about uses for the iPhone camera. Like most of your listeners, I use the camera for OCR and color detection. I'm not a huge fan of seeing AI for this, except for reading the text in screenshots, because I think it's an app that tries to do too much at once and not to a high enough standard for what I want. So I use Voice Dream Scanner for text recognition and tap tap see for image description and color detection because the descriptions I get from that app are more detailed and useful to me. Do you know what? I have tap tap see still on my phone, but I haven't used it for a long time, probably because of Ira and seeing AI and stuff. I need to give that another go. Tristan continues. However, I mainly use the camera for its original purpose, taking pictures. When I was a kid, I was fascinated by cameras and photography. My dad was a keen amateur photographer and I wanted to take pictures just like him. A couple of times he let me have a go, but they were always blurry disasters. This is because traditional cameras weren't accessible to me at all. My particular brand of low vision requires the use of both eyes in order to work properly. If I cover one eye or the other, my visual perception is drastically reduced to the point where it is pretty much useless. So devices with single eyepieces, such as telescopes, traditional eye testing equipment, and the viewfinders of old-school cameras are not an option for me. But since the advent of the iPhone, I've been able to explore the world of taking pictures. I can use the whole screen of the phone as a viewfinder, which means I have access to both eyes. I can take pictures of objects and even people if they stay still for long enough. Sometimes it takes a couple of attempts to get the angle right. I haven't yet mastered the art of cropping and tilting without cutting out half of someone's face. And I'll never be the world's most inspired photographer. But I can take a serviceable picture and share it on social media without embarrassing myself. Finally, I can even indulge my narcissistic streak and take selfies. With the help of an app called Selfie X, it's a completely non-visual app that allows the user to take a selfie using the back-facing camera. 
you hold the phone at arm's length and, with the help of audio prompts, position the camera for a good, crisp head and shoulders shot. When the voice says, say cheese, it means you're positioned correctly and the phone automatically takes your picture. My current profile pic is a Selfie X original and it's a lot better than the blurry selfies taken by sighted people using the front-facing cameras on their phones. Anyway, the iPhone camera has really opened up a part of the world that I thought was closed to me as a blind person, and I'm pretty damn happy about it. And appropriately enough, it ends with, sent from my iPhone. Thank you, Tristan. Click, click. Now, thanks to the magic of email, we whisk our way over the other side of the world to Austin, Texas, and Kathy Blackburn says, I have several camera apps on my phone. I was an early adopter of KNFB Reader, but I never got the scanning results others seem to achieve. Just breaking in there, I also remember an early iPhone app called Text Detective Kathy. And I had very good luck with KNFB Reader when I got KNFB Reader the moment it came out, literally, because I was pushing the store waiting for it to come out. I read my daughter's school report almost word perfect. I was just blown away. But some people were getting good results with this earlier app called Text Detective, and I could never make it do anything sensible in those early days. Kathy continues, also, I find its PDF conversion, this is KNFB Reader, inferior to other apps. I much prefer Seeing AI and Voice Dream Scanner for quick tasks and identifying things. I still find Digitize the best for reading barcodes. I must have lost that app along the line, or maybe it's just not updated anymore, Kathy. I haven't seen a reference to Digitize for a long time. But I was really impressed with them a very long time ago. I mentioned that I was in New Zealand and I mentioned the supermarket that we shopped from. And overnight, they had added a whole bunch of products. Quite amazing. But I haven't heard about Digitize for a very long time. Seeing AI, says Kathy, can be a bit fiddly when trying to locate the barcode and get it recognized. I do use Ira when I can't get the information I need using these apps. I have a color identifier called Clothes Color that I use occasionally. It works better than others I've tried. Thank you, Kathy. Rebecca asks, is there a stand that doesn't require constant adjustments that I can wear when I'm traveling or use a document scanner for the iPhone SE 2020? I have trouble lining up the iPhone camera for document scanning and for everything else. I like the Pearl camera's tactile interface for document scanning and use a USB barcode scanner and bscan.com to look for barcodes. If you like the Pearl, Rebecca, then yes, there are stands that emulate that. They kind of fold out the foppy-do. I don't know if you can still get the foppy-do, but that was one thing that I had when I was doing a lot of international travel. It was this cardboard thing, but surprisingly solid. It could fold up into a backpack really easily, and then you just unfold the thing, mount the camera in the top, and get a perfect scan every time. I think, though, that most people would probably agree that working with a camera just takes a little bit of practice. And the more you work with it, the better you will get in terms of understanding the relationship 
between the size of what you want to get in the camera and the distance that the camera has to be. Another way of doing this would be to use Ira, or for that matter, Be My Eyes, and just call somebody sighted. If you have a family member you're comfortable working with on FaceTime or some VoIP solution, that would work as well. And essentially just ask them, so when do I have this picture in the view at the moment, if you're looking at pieces of paper or whatever, and you'll eventually just get a feel, I think, for when it's going to work. In South Africa, Charlie is emailing in and he says that he's been blind since birth and he really would like an app that he can point the camera at something and essentially says what he's looking at. And there are apps out there that do exactly this, either with a human, such as with Be My Eyes, which is certainly available in South Africa, or with automated tools. So those apps certainly do exist. Mika is preparing, as Mika Paikala is preparing for the NFB convention although, of course, it's virtual this year, he's talking about using a GoPro 8 for Ira. Uh, So that's quite interesting. I'd like to know more about that and how the GoPro sort of interfaces with Ira. I didn't know that that's possible, but the GoPro devices are uh, something that I have not yet done too much investigation of. Reaction has continued to come in on the word blind and whether it's okay for it to be used as a pejorative. In a way, that means something other than the absence of working eyeballs. And coincidentally enough, I was reading Twitter last night, as I do, and I stumbled upon this tweet and I thought I must share it with you because it really illustrates the point that I've been making. And I'm quite surprised and delighted to say Many people seem to be concurring with many more than I was expecting, actually. So here's a quote that I read in this tweet last night. Now, somebody's going to tell me this is okay. I think this is despicable language. The quote comes from James Mook, who I've not heard of. And if I've mispronounced his name, I do sincerely apologize. He apparently is Australian of the Year in 2020. And he's talking about something very dear to my heart. As many people know who've been listening to me a while, I'm into ketogenic eating, low-carb eating. It's changed my life and given me lots of energy. So I was interested in the subject matter, very disappointed in his choice of language. So this is what he says. I want Australians to be aware the dietary advice we've been fed for decades is wrong a flawed dietary guideline which we have been obediently and blindly following for 40 years is literally killing us. And so there you have it, a classic example. We've been blindly following this for 40 years. In other words, we've been doing it without thinking. We've been doing it without consideration of the consequences. That to me right there is utterly ablest, unacceptable language. John Wesley Smith has been in touch. And he writes, hello, Jonathan, not all metaphorical uses of the word blind are inappropriate. For example, when Jesus told the Pharisees they were blind in the latter part of John chapter 9, he meant they did not see the truth, particularly the truth as to who he was. When someone uses the statement, even a blind man could see that, isn't this more of a swipe at the person being addressed rather than a swipe at blind people? As for the word vision, you objected to the phrase vision statement. I'm not entirely comfortable with it either, but the word vision in this instance encompasses more than knowledge. 
doesn't a vision statement include things like a company's mission statement, projections, and goals? The word knowledge doesn't cover the subject adequately in this case. Thanks very much for sharing that, John. And I think you're making my point for me, really. So I think that the biblical language that you quote is absolutely inappropriate. And keep in mind that I'm coming at this from the angle of an atheist. So I regard the Bible as just another book. It has no special status for me personally. I think there is some wisdom in there. I think there is also a lot of racism and misogyny and ableist language. And in my view, the ableist language around calling the Pharisees blind is an example of the inappropriate language that you can find in the Bible. If the word ignorance had been used instead of blind, it would have been just as effective. And so what happens is that people are exposed at a very early age to the concept of blind, meaning stupid or ignorant or inferior. And that really was the point that I was making last week. I don't think that that is acceptable. And similarly, with even a blind person can see that, they are really equating the word see with understanding. And this is actually a battle that I had when I was advocating in the 90s here in New Zealand for the rights of blind people to serve on a jury, because we equate seeing with understanding so much that people think if you can't see something, that you can't understand it. And similarly, that if you can, you do. And I gave the example of some sort of case involving firearms. Now, if you were a blind person who happened to study firearms, let's say, and you were given a description of a scene or a weapon or a bullet, you may have much greater comprehension of the situation than somebody who can see, but who doesn't have a clue about those things. So over the years, from the very earliest times, we have equated seeing with understanding. And I think that's the point that I am making in my objection to the use of the word blind in this way as a kind of a pejorative. I've done a few strategic plans in my time, in my professional life. So there is a difference between a vision statement and a mission statement. A mission is what you're there for. And a vision is where you hope to be if your organization has achieved all its objectives. So you could easily call it a dream, an end goal statement. There are many other words that you could potentially use besides vision. Thank you so much for keeping the dialogue going, John. Much appreciated. Hey, Jonathan. Hope that you were good to use the word blindness rather than the lack of vision. I've noticed they've used, they, they use it a lot on the side. There's actually three words that they use um, in, in three different languages. Oh, I never told you. I can actually speak up to 34 languages, including which is all 12 languages up here in South Africa and other languages from other African countries as well. This, the, 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 there's three um, native in South African languages that I know, um, which they have the word blindness, for, and it's used for lack of vision as well. It's um, the closer word is infama, and then you will have the situ word, which is sifofi, and then you will have the um, Zulu word impumpote. And those words are actually used to illustrate loss of vision or lack of vision. But uh, yeah, I understand where where you're coming from, and I do get offended when you're gonna say you must have been blind in order to be so stupid, you know. Are you blind? 
You start saying you see things like that. I do get a feeling because you can't say it to a person. Are you blind? You understand? It's like now what they do. Like now I'm looking. I was looking actually for a place to stay, and um, I almost didn't find a place because people have this mentality. Sighted people have this mentality that you know you have to prove yourself in order before they can actually render you as capable of doing anything for yourself because they have taken that slang of blindness and they used it in the wrong sense of ignorant and stupid. That's what they think that blind people then now are. And that for me is wrong. It's completely, completely and utterly wrong. I always and always and always try my utmost best in order to tell people that that's wrong. You're thinking in the wrong manner. Please try and think in the correct manner. You understand? It's 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 it's, it's, it's very disturbing, and I do get offended by it. Thanks, Charlie. And this does take the discussion in a slightly different direction, which is a good thing because these conversations do evolve. But it does feel often as a blind person like you are on trial, and that you are representing other blind people, that you're somebody's ambassador for blindness. And so I've had situations where maybe I've just had an off day and I've spilled a glass of water or something accidentally has happened. People immediately think that that's because you're a blind person. And if you were a sighted person and you did exactly the same thing, they'd say, oh, gosh, you're just having an off day or you're clumsy or something like that. But it is amazing what gets attributed to blindness. And sometimes it is exhausting. It is exhausting to feel like you have to prove yourself all the time. Hi, Jonathan. It's uh, Sarah Hillis. And I all, I should say, I have a master's degree in English language and literature. So I really should have something to say about this. And I didn't say anything last this past week when the show was on because I didn't know how to put my thoughts into shape. Um, first of all, yes, I believe I believe that this language shouldn't exist in the way that it does. I actually will quibble with the blind spot language because it actually refers to a visual phenomenon, say, when you're driving a car. There is a blind spot, uh, and so people use that word. So I think that's a different connotation uh, of the word. But the actual, like to say even a blind man could see that, I mean, because you're talking about mental faculties, I do believe that that's a silly way to use the word and shouldn't be used. I don't know if it's the whole reason why and I don't think you're saying this, but I don't know if it's the whole reason why we're barred from things that we shouldn't be barred from, like employment and such. I, I think the primal reason is A, you know, ignorance or, or lack of knowledge concerning how we do things, and B, an actual fear among people with vision of not having vision, because it's such a pervasive part of of their lives. You know, it would be like me not having hearing, like what? What would I do? I, I mean, I, I, I think I have enough of an open mind to try to get beyond it, but it would be really hard, as you know, Jonathan, especially. Um, it was really hard for you to, to have those attacks and, and you know, get, get to grips with that whole thing and try to find your way through it. And so it's a part of it, that's a part of it, too. Like when people come up to you on the street and want to help you, sometimes my mother has always said that sometimes it's because they just can't imagine how you could know where you're going, right? They just can't put themselves in your in your shoes because they think, I wouldn't know what to do. What, how would that stick tell me anything? You know, that sort of thing. Okay, so should we change the language? Yes, we should. 
Uh, we should then get rid of, you know, a crippling economic crisis. We should get rid of that. We should get rid of idiotic and moronic because they referred to people who were not people in the eyes of the law at the time. And we shouldn't have that anymore. And we shouldn't have, like, there's a lot of things we shouldn't have. So my, my one question would be, where do we stop? Where, where do we stop? That's my only question, is where does it end? And will it end up devolving into newspeak? That's my only question. I'm not saying that you're trying to do that. I'm saying that if it keeps going and going and going, there will be many reasons to get rid of so many things. And where will it stop? That's my only question. And it is a fair question. Thank you so much, Sarah. I think where it stops is where the individual community concerned decides that it should stop. For example, it is not considered appropriate in polite company to describe something or someone, for that matter, thank goodness, as retarded anymore. That is just considered, and rightly so, an offensive term. You do hear some young people using it. You also hear quite a few young people describing something. It's not even someone necessarily. Sometimes it's a situation as lame. And I personally find that offensive as well. But in the end, I think the arbiter of where it stops does rest with the community who may feel they are being denigrated. I talked last week about how dominant a sense sight is and that when you have it, you depend on it enormously. You rely on it. And there are all sorts of surveys that show how much information sighted people acquire from sight. And you're right, a lot of it is about fear. So I'm certainly not suggesting that if we got rid of this language, it would be the cure-all, far from it. And there's been an interesting thread floating around Twitter over the last week or so, hypothesizing about sighted people's fear of the dark and how if you've been blind since birth, you don't have a fear of the dark, but that it is very common for sighted children, and that, of course, is the vast majority of children, to fear the dark. So this Twitter thread that's been going around over the last week or so has been hypothesizing that one of the reasons why blind people or blindness is feared so much is because people equate blindness with the dark and they fear the dark. And if you think, oh, that's just a load of old nonsense, as the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy might say, a load of fetid dingo's kidneys. You know, there are surveys that have been done where they have surveyed people about the condition or the impairment that people fear the most. Some of these surveys have included health conditions and disabilities. And blindness in some of these surveys is sometimes feared more than AIDS or cancer, both of which can be fatal. Yet blindness is not a fatal condition. So you're right, let's not underestimate just how much fear there is of blindness and the way that that fear permeates people's perceptions of blind people. Hi, Jonathan. This is Claudia from Tampa, Florida. I just wanted to talk about two topics really quick. Uh, the first one is I absolutely agree with you 100% about the term you should be you could be blind to do that or something like that um i think it is definitely offensive and i think that we should evolve our language because we've done it with other minorities and i think it could we could bring that forward to visual impairment or blindness as well 
And I also want to bring up Braille displays. I have the HIMSS Smart Beetle, which is a 14 cell Braille display, and I love it. I use it because it's very portable and it's really easy for me to carry it to school. I like the fact that it can connect with multiple devices at once and it's very easy to use. Love your podcast. I find it very informative and thanks. Lovely to hear from you, Claudia. Thank you. And here's Roy Nash. He hasn't sent a voice message in this week. So I have to do, I, I guess I have to do my Roy Nash. What is it? This is Roy Nash from Little Rock, Arkansas. I don't do it as well as you, Roy. Anyway, good to hear from you. Hope your microphones are working out okay. Roy says, I totally agree with your statements regarding the application of the metaphor, which compares blindness to ignorance. I cringe every time I hear it used. In taking this position, I feel like a drowning swimmer fighting against an overpowering current. It's a beautiful metaphor, Roy. <laughs> Literature has made frequent use, he says, of the metaphor, and it is a theme which occurs and reoccurs in the Bible. I am often at a loss as to how best to explain my feelings to people who equate blindness with ignorance. Friends interpret my objections as proof of my being oversensitive. I too remember the KNFB reader, he says, with the Nokia phone, with the speech that cost thousands of dollars. I wish I had a total of my expenses for adaptive technology over the years, whatever the total it has been worth it. I am happy that people can get that technology for less today. Lovely, Roy. Thank you. Good to hear from you. Laurel Jean has emailed in and says, Hi, Jonathan. After reading your introduction to this week's show, there are a myriad, a myriad, I tell you, of topics on which I would love to write. I am always learning something new from you, my fellow listeners and contributors, especially on the subject of technology. Still, I keep going back to your question regarding the word blind. Blind. First, let me preface what I am about to say with the affirmation that I enjoy a happy, productive, fulfilling life. I own my own home and am extremely active in my community. Having said this, many aspects of my childhood and adolescence, to quote an expression I once heard, put the fun in dysfunctional and one incident in particular still has me a bit puzzled. I have been blind from birth and was enrolled in a birth-to-three program in which teachers came to our home to assist with my early childhood development. I was verbal at a very early age. Once, when my older brother, sighted and seven years my senior, was going to meet his school bus, I asked my mum, what is his school called? When my mom answered Motul's skill, I asked her if I would go there someday. She answered, no, you're going to Lincoln School. Not long after this conversation, my brother began chanting on a regular basis, Laurie's going to an insane asylum. When I was around three years old, my mom, accompanied by a neighbor, drove me to Lincoln School, a couple of hours away from our home. I remember being brought into a very chaotic playroom and standing bewildered as an overly zealous woman bounced a ball attached to what seemed to be a heavy table by a heavy chain and kept repeating loudly, Do you want to play with the ball? The ball? The ball? I stood there, 
turned my face towards her voice and said, I want to be with my mum. Please take me to my mum. She did. And that is really all I can remember about the day's events. Not long after this incident, I was taken to Milton's school where my sighted brother also attended and went through a barrage of tests administered by the school district's psychologist. I repeated long strings of numbers backwards and forwards and answered a lot of other questions. The next thing that I remember is going to preschool at Milton and I continued to be mainstreamed. Lincoln School was never mentioned again. Throughout my childhood, I was often corrected for my blindisms, told that I needed to look normal and not to look retarded. Even as I gained my independence, my mental competence was often questioned, and I have always felt an urgency to work very hard at proving my competency. When I moved from Illinois to South Carolina, I actually had to take some legal action against my family as they tried to keep me from leaving the area and again called my competency into question. Of course, I prevailed and am grateful for all who stood beside me during this process. After my move, mom and others would call me often, insisting that I should be grateful to mom for not putting me in an institution. This led me to do a bit of internet research on Lincoln School. According to Wikipedia, the Lincoln Developmental Center was an institution for developmentally challenged children in Lincoln, Illinois. It was founded in 1877 as the Illinois Asylum for Feeble-Minded Children and became the Lincoln State School in 1954 and adopted its final name in 1975. It was closed in 2002 by Governor George Ryan after reports of abuse, neglect and preventable deaths. When I later confronted Mom as to why the Jacksonville, Illinois School for the Blind was not considered and why I was on track to go to the Lincoln State School for Developmentally Challenged Children, she merely replied that the experts thought that was best. After further research, I learned that Public Law 94-142 was passed in 1975, providing a public education for children with disabilities. This would have been at about the time that the tracks were switched on my early childhood education and I became a mainstreamed student. I shudder when I think how close I came to being placed in such an institutional environment. To this day, I have no idea why the School for the Blind was not considered and why the Lincoln State School was emphasised. I cannot obtain a straight answer to that question from anyone. To answer your question, yes, the word blind should be used only when referring to a lack of sight. Blindness has been associated with a lack of mental competency for entirely too long. I am very curious to know if it was common for blind children to be placed in institutions other than those designed specifically for educating the blind and if any others out there have had similar childhood experiences. Thank you for taking the time to read this. You may feel welcome to share this as time permits. I have nothing to hide in this regard. If anyone else has struggled with similar circumstances, please know that there's life after all of this.
I couldn't be happier with my life now and am grateful to be able to encourage others on their journeys. Thanks also for providing this safe environment in which all of us can share our experiences. Best wishes to you, Bonnie, and all. Thank you, Laurel. Um, <laughs> that, that breaks my heart. I, uh, I'm sorry you went through that, and I'm glad that you were rescued in the nick of time and came out the other side. Hello, Jonathan. I would like to comment on the discussion from last week's show about using the word blind in negative contexts. I agree that it can probably consolidate negative views that people have of blind people. And something that has really annoyed me whenever I heard it is the story of the blind people looking at an elephant. Although, of course, this is a lot less damaging than many other things that have been mentioned in last week's show. Um, they touch the elephant and then one person says the elephant looks like that and the other person says no, it looks like that. And then they um, discuss what the elephant really looks like because they have all felt different parts of the elephant. And this story is often uh, told in, in contexts where the person who tells the story wants to encourage others to see different sides of one thing, where the the person wants to think they are a bit cleverer than the people they're talking to and need to, the, the people need to be told to see different perspectives of things. And at the same time, they don't have a clue how we do actually look at things. I mean, I think if you are a blind child and haven't been discouraged from exploring the world, you just naturally touch something and if you can't reach further, you go a bit further so you can reach more of it to see the whole thing. This is really not how we are portrayed in the story. In the story, I think we're portrayed as a bit a bit, bit stupid. I feel in the story, we're objectified just so that the speaker can tell an inspirational story. So I, I really dislike that the story is, to, is used to teach people something when the teller of the story actually doesn't know what they are talking about. Thank you, Sandra. And it's one of those things that just keeps being trotted out, isn't it? This story, it's usually about the blind men. I've never heard it about blind women uh, and the elephant. And it's it's trotted out. There is some great profundity. It's just nonsense, isn't it? Not And not only nonsense, ableist nonsense. Gary O'Donoghue says, I knew a vicar once who got his congregation to blindfold themselves and wander around the church in an attempt to tell them what it was like being without the Holy Spirit. Unpacking that one, he says, in all its layers, does my head in. We could do a whole show on religion and blindness, religion and disability in general. And I know that there are groups dedicated to trying to modernize uh, the religious viewpoint when it comes to disability, which is often terribly antiquated. You get people who think that we must be cured. Not only that, but we must want a cure. I cannot tell you the number of times I have been just going about my own business, walking somewhere, sometimes in a degree of a hurry to get somewhere because I have an appointment or something, and I get accosted by somebody on the street and they say, you know, did you know that God can heal you from your blindness? I actually have a great story about this. This happened to me once when I was at university 
And uh, I actually do enjoy engaging. I really do enjoy engaging on this subject. And when the Jehovah's Witnesses and some of those who tend to proselytize at your doorstep come, I love the conversations. And if I've got time, I will sit there and talk to them and discuss things with them as long as they'll talk to me. I love it. Yes. Anyway, I was walking along to university, fairly new at university, actually, still getting used to the route. And this person just sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, good morning. You know, I thought he was just going to say nice day or do you want a hand or anything? But then he said, did you know that God can heal you from your blindness? And I said, why would he want to do a terrible thing like that for? And he was absolutely flabbergasted. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, when I finish talking to you, I'm going to the library. And in the library, they've assigned me a room. And in that room for the next five hours, because this is my sort of reading day predominantly, I'm going to be read to by a succession of what I'm told are very beautiful women and, you know, chat to them and converse with them. And you're telling me that God would want to heal me from this? I said, he wouldn't do such a thing. And he paused. You could sort of hear his little brain ticking over. And he said, ah, I can see your blindnesses of the heart as well as of the eyes. And he walked away. Trouble was, by that stage, since it was a new route, I'd completely forgotten where I was and how to get to where I needed to be um, (laughs) once that thing was over. Now, on the subject of cameras, Tim is also emailing in on this. He's prolific. That's what he is. He's prolific. And he says that because he needs good quality video, for his own low vision, you know, he's, he's low vision, so he needs high quality to see what he's producing himself. Everybody benefits, and everybody says he's really good at video because he takes care to make sure that it's all very clear. So that is a very cool perspective. It just goes to show it's true what they say: accessibility benefits everyone. Hey, Jonathan, it is Doug. Thought I would come out here and say hi and say I hope all is well. Anyway, I just thought I would let you know I'm beta testing iOS 14, and it's the second public beta. Uh, Basically, one of the features that I've been testing is something called um, image descriptions. So, what I'm going to do, I'll give you a brief demonstration of what I'm talking about. I'm going to go to the voiceover settings, and there is an option in voiceover. It's past the Braille option, and you'll hear it in just a moment. So I'm going to go demonstrate this now. Voiceover recognition button. Okay, there's a new option now with iOS 14 that I've been testing. It's called voiceover recognition. I'm going to double tap there. Using my device intelligence, your iPhone will automatically improve your accessibility of apps, images, and text. Voiceover recognition should not be relied upon in circumstances where you could be harmed or injured. In high- okay, I'm going to flick to the right. Basically, it gives you the disclaimer of why this shouldn't be used. Image descriptions. Oh, your iPhone will speak descriptions of images and apps and on the web. Basically, it's self-explanatory. It does what it says it's going to do. It's going to read descriptions of images, you know, on the web and all that good stuff. Screen recognition on button. Your iPhone will automatically make apps more accessible by recognizing items on the screen. Twitter. This is a new one that a lot of people might be interested in. Apps will become more accessible with this option on, apparently. Text recognition on. Double tap to toggle setting. Your iPhone will speak descriptions of text found in images. And basically text description. Basically, it'll give you text descriptions of 
all that cool stuff. Thanks, Doug. Nice to know you're taking the brave step of doing the beta testing. And I do believe that it's a bug where they say this is public beta 2 because, of course, it is public beta 1. This is the first beta that they released just a couple of days ago, but it's developer beta 2. I've been running the developer betas of 14 since they came out on WWDC Day, and now a lot more people can have access to it. So how's iOS beta testing going for you? That text recognition feature is quite interesting, and I find it fascinating going into apps like Uber Eats, for example, and you now get all sorts of information about descriptions of the food on the screen and all kinds of stuff like that. So it'll be interesting to watch this uh, develop over the next little while while we're in this beta cycle. If the idea of no iPhone power button has you thinking about shopping around and perhaps jumping ship to a Samsung Galaxy phone, here's Christian who says, hey, Jonathan, I remember that setting up the Bixby wake word on the Galaxy S8 was not accessible. Yes, you can go way back into the blind side podcast archives and hear a demo of the Samsung Galaxy S8. And things have moved on, of course, a lot since then. He says, I just wanted to let you know that on the newer Samsung phones, it is fully accessible. Hooray! Bixby will say what it needs you to say, and then it will play a sound indicating that you should start speaking. There is also no more Bixby logo. You just double tap the start button, which is labeled, and it just works. That's great news. Thank you, Christian. Good to hear that Samsung's continuing to improve accessibility. Joe Quinn is tuned in, and he wants to know about the best microphone for use with iOS. He says, I hear the Zoom series is good, but heard inaccessibilities with adjusting volume. What else is good slash bad? I've had two of those Zoom microphones, and I can't confirm any accessibility issues at all. If you're going to use a professional type of microphone, then you are going to want to monitor with some sort of headphone type device. So when you plug the Zoom microphone into the lightning port, it's just a wee sort of dongle that plugs into the mic port. You have a volume there that adjusts the gain level of the mic. And then I think there's uh, another way to adjust the headphones potentially. But it is really straightforward. Just plug in some cans or some earbuds or something, which you will want to do anyway in a more professional situation like this, and you're good to go. The one thing I have found with those Zoom microphones, which would mean I'd actually hesitate to recommend them, is that maybe I just got early versions of them. I don't know. But boy, did they pick up a lot of interference from the radios. I took this mic, which does uh, you can you can adjust the mics and do some very nice stereo patterns with them. And I took this mic and we did an outside broadcast on Mushroom FM. Just me and my iPhone, and I it wasn't this was even before long before Backpack Studio. We're talking three or four years ago. So I was using a combination of tools, but we did stream this event live on Mushroom FM. And what I found was I actually had to unplug that Zoom microphone and just use the built-in mic, which was a shame because we lost the stereo then because it was just picking up so much interference from the cellular radios. So it's fine if you want to put it into airplane mode and use one of those Zoom microphones. And this is the same Zoom that do all those premium quality recorders. But if you want to stream something, it's not suitable. Now, Damo, he was telling me, Damo of the all-day breakfast fame here on Mushroom FM, he was telling me that he's using a Shure mic. I forget the model number, 
but it's a very similar concept that you uh, it, it it's a self-contained dongle and you plug it into the lightning port and adjust things plug a headphone thing of some sort into it and you're golden and he says that that is a very good microphone of course if you were to buy the camera adapter kit particularly the new one from apple then you can use any usb microphone that you like really and that opens up all sorts of possibilities so no end of options for you, but uh, if anyone has any recommendations for iOS-specific devices, then please let us know. I think it's worth pointing out that there are some big changes coming to audio in iOS 14, and it's possible that if you wait for those changes, you may find that there's no longer a need for an external microphone, depending on your use case. We'll have stereo recording available finally for audio apps in iOS 14. Apple gave a demonstration of this and a presentation, actually, a webinar on it at WWDC, and they showed developers the new API where you can specify which microphones, because there are several on your iPhone, to use in different stereo configurations. So it'll be up to the recording apps to support this when 14 comes out, and I'm sure that any good audio app worth its salt is going to do that. The combination of the availability of stereo in these apps and the ability that app developers have had for some time to offer you the ability to turn off Apple's audio processing could, I think, mean that for many use cases, you're just not going to need anything else. So you might want to sit it out and see what the range of audio apps behave like when 14 is officially out. While I am talking about audio and while I remember to mention this, Zoom has come out with another portable recorder. This one is quite small and it's called the H8. And I think that means that it has eight inputs. Unfortunately, it does have a little touch screen, but it sounds like that's only useful for some functions. Like if you're recording a podcast in the field, apparently you can set up little carts, you know, so you might be able to push one of these buttons while you're recording and it will do which I accept could be useful but I mean I would tend to record just interviews in the field and then bring it back into the studio myself so that may not be a showstopper for you I don't believe that the H8 does 32-bit float recording, which to me has just been such a wonderful, reassuring thing. I actually went to Parliament the other day with my Zoom F6. It was great getting it through parliamentary security. (laughs) And then I went to interview a a minister, as in a, a cabinet minister here in New Zealand, with my Zoom F6 and a couple of those Sony lavalier mics that cost a small bomb. Uh, and it all went, it all went really well. I, I do like my Zoom F6. He's a handy man to know that Gary O'Donoghue, even if he exhausts my wallet a bit. That Zoom F6 is just such a cool purchase. Very happy with it. Anyway, so Zoom H8, it is available now. There are little YouTube reviews popping up. And of course, Gary, we are relying on you to buy one so you can do a review for Mosin at large. I mean, you can always send it back if you don't like it, eh? Yeah. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Here's an email from India from Adi with an interesting discussion point. And 
don't know whether this will go anywhere. I don't know whether people will want to advance this discussion, but it is a really important point. And so I read it here in case anyone would like to talk about this. He writes, Dear Jonathan, in your ever so informative and enjoyable Mosin at Large podcast, in addition to discussing assistive technology, you also have interesting discussions on various topics. Do you feel that the mental health of the visually challenged merits discussion in any future episode of Mosin at Large? This is a very sensitive subject and not spoken of easily, even in the sighted community. I do feel that mental health is of the utmost importance to us, and we rarely get an opportunity to express ourselves. Though I do not believe in generalizations, as we each have our own unique experiences, However, for putting thoughts on paper, I do feel that as a community we are marginalised and may be subject to a higher level of mental abuse. Additionally, it will be very interesting to know about coping mechanisms which all of us practice to deal with our mental issues. Love listening to your thoughts and podcasts as always. Well, thank you, Addy, for raising this. And absolutely, it is a topic that we can and probably should talk about. And when I posted that we would be talking about this issue this week, Adi has sent some more thoughts, and he says, One, I do believe that just like for anyone else, for the visually impaired also, mental health is very relevant and important. The lockdown has made us realize how fragile as a society we can be, and why mental health is as important as any other aspect of one's existence. Two, Many a times, we visually challenged in society have learned to compromise on many situations, and thus in life. Though many of us do realize the importance of mental health, maybe we do not know how to deal with them, and hence also compromise on the same. Three, amongst the visually challenged also, I feel that people with degenerative eye conditions and who are not born blind are more vulnerable to mental health issues. Many times we even do not realize that we are being subject to abuse. During the days when I was moving from being almost sighted to almost totally blind, I have been subjected to a lot of unnecessary trauma. There were times even my own extended family questioned my authenticity with respect to my diminishing eyesight. At that time, I did have a good friend circle and most of them moved away from me though I was the same person without my eyesight. Though during the period I have made many new friendships and have had a very creative social life, the journey has not been easy. Why is it that we have to prove ourselves at every stage of our professional life? For most of my professional career, I was always pushing myself to be more competent and was always trying to fit in. But for how long can this continue? Are we not humans who need to express ourselves and our needs? But is there someone who is interested in understanding our needs and specific requirements? The lockdown has made me realize that many times in our lives we may need sighted assistance, but what if this assistance is not available? There is a very interesting story of a financially well-to-do blind couple here. During the lockdown, Though they had quite some money in their bank, they were unable to procure groceries. They did contact a lot of friends and family, but finally a lady in their society came to their rescue. We all have different versions of such experiences. 
where we become extremely vulnerable, and this can very much affect our mental health. Many times I feel in our community we are putting each other down. Jealousy somehow seems to be more prevalent. I am just sharing two of my recent experiences which really affected me negatively. First, on account of lockdown, many visually challenged, like others, were working from home. Recently, I realized a new trend where many blind people are taking assistance of their sighted spouses to get their professional work done. This somehow did not feel right to me and really affected me as I, along with some others, were pushing for accessibility. Today, given how so many organizations are struggling for survival, no one seems to be complaining as to how the work is being done as long as it is bringing business. Second, I was a very heavy user of Uber Eats as it was very accessible. In early January 2020, Uber Eats stopped functioning in India and merged with Zomato, which was very inaccessible with voiceover. I was truly distraught as I had no other alternative. I already wrote to the company explaining the importance of accessibility and asked some of my visually challenged acquaintances to do the same to put pressure on the organization. Some complied, while others bashed me, saying it was trivial and you can take the assistance of any sighted person. This also seems to have affected me as it becomes so easy for others to make assumptions. I think people who do have sighted spouses seem to take a lot of things for granted. While I completely support them in choosing a life partner of their choice, assuming others will do the same, is just not acceptable. Though it pleases me that as I write this email to you, I have just ordered a meal from Zomato for my mother and me. The company did respond, and though their app is not fully accessible yet, it is very much manageable. My coping mechanisms. 1. Practicing self-love and acceptance and repracticing the same is very powerful. 2. Meditation. I cannot emphasize the importance of meditation in every aspect of my life. It has brought a deeper level of self-acceptance and helped me to develop self-love. I am less affected by the opinions of others. 3. Daily gratitude and journaling have also played a very crucial role in dealing with my emotional well-being. 4. Recently, I have been looking for the option of therapy. However, have not yet been able to find the right therapist. A lot of the issues we may have may be because of our blindness, and many of them may not be related to blindness at all. Finding a therapist who can understand this and thus act in a holistic manner is important. My search continues, as I am not okay to make myself a subject of experiment for the therapist. Five, I am part of a local psycho-support group created by two able-bodied individuals. This is a cross-disability group wherein we meet once a month and just share without being judged. It very much helps to lighten one's burden. I appreciate that very much, Adi. That was an interesting email. You have raised a lot of issues that people may like to respond to individually. For example, dependence on sighted spouses and the risks, actually, to marriages of treating your sighted spouse like a caregiver instead of an equal partner. That is something that I think blind people have to be really careful about because it can taint the relationship. 
You have also talked about what I have referred to on the show in the past as the parasites in our community, the people who complain about those of us who go out there and make a difference. So, for example, all of those people who called you out on the accessibility of the Zomato app will now be stuffing their faces much more easily because they can order from Zomato themselves. And those people really annoy me. They are parasites and they should be called out because they sit there thinking discrimination doesn't happen to me. These people are troublemakers. They want the government to fix everything. They're politically correct, you name it. And yet they're quite happy to sponge off the hard work of other advocates. And I understand why that gets you down. It gets me down as well. You do also raise a very interesting point regarding mental health professionals. And actually, this applies to medical professionals too. You know, sometimes if you want to do counseling or talk to somebody about a particular issue, they are the ones who get sidetracked by your blindness because they 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 think that your blindness must be a contributing factor to this issue when sometimes it is but quite a bit of the time it has nothing to do with it and of course that also applies when you go into a doctor and the doctor is just fascinated by the cause of your blindness and on and on and you know you might have gone in with a pain in your foot or something (laughs) but they're just completely sidetracked by the whole blindness thing so a lot of things to chew over in that email i appreciate it Gary O'Donoghue tells me he is not, not buying a Zoom H8. I, I agree. That is a sad thing, Gary. Anyway, he's not buying one. So there, the Zoom H8 does have the ability to talk to your iPhone via Bluetooth like the F6 does. But Gary tells me that unlike the F6, There aren't a lot of settings that you can configure. Uh, Curtis Judd, who's a very reputable and brilliant source on all this gear, says that it's mainly transport-type functions and metering that you get. So you can play and record and that kind of thing. But what a lot of blind people really want is the ability to tweak lots of settings, which you can with the Zoom F6. Not as many settings as I would personally like, but you can certainly do quite a few of those settings. Greetings, Jonathan and Mushroom Radio listeners. This is Stan Latrell from Medford, Oregon. I use these um, Shure MV88 microphone, and I find it quite useful. However, I wouldn't recommend using the MV88 app with it. It's usable, but I really don't like it. There are whole sorts of recording apps that I would recommend, but uh, that is not one of them. Mosin at Large Podcast! Dawn is in Sydney. She sat down with her iPad and written in, and she says, I'd like some advice about wearing hearing aids and using headphones. I have a pair of AirPods Pro, but find it too difficult to take them out every time I want to use them. There must be an easier solution to this problem, but it beats me to know what that might be. Any advice would be helpful. Well, I'll open it up, Dawn. I think this could be quite complex because it depends on the kind of hearing aid you have. If you have a hearing aid with a mold that consumes your entire ear, then really I don't think there is a different way. One thing you could potentially do is try getting a set of headphones that go over your ears and seeing how that works with your particular hearing aids. 
with my current hearing aids, that does work, even though I've got behind the ear hearing aids. So the microphone of the hearing aids is not where the mold is. It's sort of behind your ear. But I have found that with a good large size cup on the set of headphones that I use, the studio monitors, actually I can get some good sounds. And my hearing aids have a loop setting, a hearing aid loop setting where they mute the microphone entirely. And I find that gives me pretty good sound, actually, really nice sound. I did buy some AirPods Pros to see if I could get any use out of them, but I wasn't getting quite enough volume for them to be of any use to me. So Bonnie inherited my AirPods Pros. Now, I know that Michael Fair has talked to me about this. As I understand it, his hearing aids are receiver in canal, and that means that he's got enough room in his ear to put the AirPods in. So he's wearing his AirPods and hearing aids at the same time. Now, that's cool if you can do it, but that will depend on the type of hearing aid that you have. And also, you've got to be really careful that you don't push something way, way deep into your ear. So I'm not sure whether any audiologist would recommend that because there could be some safety issues potentially around that. So my best advice, if the hearing aids you have aren't producing good enough sound, it might be a good idea to just give the AirPods a miss and look at over-the-ear headphones with a nice big cup that will accommodate your hearing aids. But others may well have uh, some solutions here. I also do have that direct audio input cable I've talked about repeatedly here, where you can connect your hearing aids to uh, any headphone jack. That is okay. It won't produce the full rich bass of a good set of headphones, though, not by a long chalk. Email from Peter in Hungary, who says, first of all, thanks for the suggestions concerning a good RSS reader on Windows. QFeed is fine, although it works only with one feed in the free version. Luna crashed in the beginning of the installation, no matter if I used the normal or the portable version. Maybe it doesn't like Windows 7. Mate, you got the Nokia phone and Windows 7. You live in the dream of retro. I haven't, he says, tried yet what your Dutch listener suggested. But now I have another question. In my last email, I wrote that I used a Nokia N96 smartphone with Symbian and talks running on it. My mother changed her phone and gave the old one to me. I thought, why not play a little with the Samsung Galaxy J3? So I dipped my feet into the Android world. Some of my goals are already reached. Money recognition, scanning grocery packages with Voice Dream Scanner, making my water meter read by a friend through Skype. But which app would you use for subscribing and listening to podcasts? I know that you live basically in iOS land, but you may have some knowledge that you can share with me about podcast players for Android. If not, one of your listeners could have a good idea for me. On my Samsung smartphone, Android 5.1 is the version of the operating system. I use TalkBack as the screen reader instead of Samsung Voice Assistant. Have you heard anything about the accessibility of the Deezer app on Android? I use Deezer from 2013, but only on the desktop. I would like to have a look at Deezer on this platform. The question is, is it worth it? Is it accessible? Thanks, Peter. Well, I guess the best way to find out is to try it. You know, I mean, if it doesn't work out, you can just delete it. So 
That's what I tend to do. Just be a bit adventurous, install something. If you find it hasn't worked out for you, then uninstall it. Regarding podcast players, that is a very old version of Android, but a couple that I know work pretty well with Android. Pocket Casts is a great choice because it is cross-platform. So there's a Pocket Casts web-based version, one for iOS and one for Android, so you could check that out. And also Podcast Addict, I seem to recall, comes highly recommended on the Android platform. But you're right, I'm not using Android on a daily basis, so if there are podcast recommendations from people who are using Android regularly, podcast client recommendations, that is, by all means be in touch and share those with us. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com, the listener line number 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and all the very best, Peter, on your Android journey. Julie McCullough is in touch once again. She says, hi, Jonathan. If someone is sharing writing on the screen through screen sharing on Zoom, is there a way to be able to read it? Sadly, no. Screen sharing sends bitmap images. And this is the same in Microsoft Teams as well, by the way. Even Microsoft, with all the powers that come from being Microsoft, don't do this at the moment either. So even if somebody's sending a document that is actually accessible, like a Word document or a PowerPoint presentation, what's appearing on the screen is a bitmapped image. Therefore, it is not accessible. So if you know in advance that someone presenting at a meeting that you will be attending intends using PowerPoint or Word or something of that nature, make sure they send the document to you ahead of time. Hi Jonathan, it's Tim Veld from the Netherlands. Last week we had this discussion about the use of the word blind. But this week I experienced something that made me realize that unfortunately this discussion is still rather academic. I work in digital accessibility and there is the International Association of Accessibility Professionals. That's an American group which certifies people to be an accessibility professional. And someone pointed me at that, and it turns out that if I want to make the exam, if I'm sighted and if I'm not using assistive technology, I can make it with online proctoring. There are some systems that I have to install a webcam and make it on my computer. Or I can go to one of many facilities in my country that would offer the exam. If I'm blind and I use assistive technology, I need to arrange my own proctor, a volunteer who needs to already have passed the exam, or I need to uh, get an organization that will host a special event for me because the online proctoring system and the exam rooms, the physical exam rooms that IAAP uses are not accessible to users of assistive technology. Okay, so what it amounts to, if I'm blind, I need to make special arrangements to make the exam to be an accessibility professional. What the soup? If there's one profession that you should be able to take on when you're blind, it's accessibility professional. And seriously, what excuse is there not to make an online accessibility professional exam accessible? What technical barrier is there to that? Okay, if I'm the only blind student in a university, I understand that maybe the university has some problems with that. But 
We're not talking about some random university. We're talking about the International Association of Accessibility Professionals offering an inaccessible exam. In other words, it's normal that blind people, whenever they want to do something, they have to make special arrangements because they can't participate in the normal procedures. I mean, if the IAAP cannot make a procedure accessible, then who can be expected to? I haven't uh, contacted them yet, but probably they're going to tell you that it's difficult to find a partner which can administer international exams, which does that in an accessible manner. A university maybe can get away with that. Although even at my university, when I made exams, they adapted the exams and arranged special proctoring at their own cost. I didn't have to find a volunteer. The International Association of Accessibility Professionals cannot get away with an exam procedure that is not accessible to a blind person. Tim, I was so sure that you have to be wrong about this that I did look it up. I did a web search on the International Association of Accessibility Professionals and found the section of the website where they talk about exams. And you're absolutely right. You have represented the situation 100% accurately. I am sorry for ever doubting you. I have already reached out to the International Association of Accessibility Professionals and expressed my astonishment. And I have asked if somebody from that organization will come on the podcast and explain this to us. So hopefully we will get a response from them. That said, Tim, I completely disagree that that in any way invalidates the inappropriateness of using that kind of language that we've been talking about around the word blind. Um, the, the two things aren't really related. Here is something interesting from Mika Paikala. And we're going to talk about virtual conventions in just a moment. But Mika says that he believes someone has submitted a resolution about the International Association of Accessibility Professionals and their inaccessible exam process. And I look forward to that. I really will be interested to see if we can get some engagement on this issue from them and we will get them on the podcast. So I will keep my powder relatively dry on the off chance that we can have that dialogue. We'll see what happens over the next week and whether we can have that interview in next week's edition of Mosin at Large. Shirley Roberts has emailed in because she saw a tweet that I sent on the Mosin at Large Twitter account. And if you are on Twitter, and why aren't you if you are not, then do follow Mosin at Large on Twitter because during the week I often try to tweet technology news and other blindness-related news and things that I think Mosin at Large listeners might be interested in. And I sent a tweet earlier in the week about a new feature relating to the soup drinker. And Shirley is asking about this. So this new feature is rolling out to the iOS Soup Drinker app. It's being enabled progressively. So one day you will run your app for your Amazon type Echo type device type. I'm trying not to say that naughty A word. Imagine if you're named that. That must be so tough to be called that name these days. Anyway, one day you will open your app for said Amazon Echo device and they will say to you, Human, they will say, would you like to be able to enable the hands-free function of this app? 
And when you do that, if you do it, you will be able to use the wake word, the same wake word. Well, I presume you can use the multiplicity of wake words that the Amazon Echo typically has. I don't know. But you'll be able to use a wake word to wake up your voice assistant, your Amazon voice assistant, hands-free, but you will have to be in the app. So it has limited functionality. My understanding is, you know, you're not going to be able to have this running in the background and just yell the wake word at your phone and have it wake up. But it's just, I guess, slightly more convenient because you're not going to have to tap that bottom button there to invoke the assistant. So that will be coming to your Echo-related app very soon. It's convention season in the United States with a difference. The American Council of the Blind, I think, have they wrapped up now? They're about to, if they haven't already, they had their virtual convention and the National Federation of the Blinds convention is coming up. It's time for another Petra pontification on this matter. She says, I was not interested, not interested in the ACB virtual convention until my friend Bernice Kandarian told me about a discussion on smart homes and then on Legos. Once I turned the convention on with the Echo, it almost hooked me. I did listen to the smart home and Lego shows and enjoyed them very much. That made me rethink what I had been thinking about virtual anything. As far as virtual anythings go, I would rather be there in person. I like to look at the products in the exhibit hall and mingle with people I haven't seen in a long time or never met before. With a virtual convention, I still have all the responsibilities of home. But at the physical convention, I can eat food that I might not cook myself without cleaning up afterward. I don't have to answer the door or take care of the cats. It's a vacation. Now that I attended part of the virtual convention, I can see that both have a place. Of course, it's less expensive, and if people are uncomfortable travelling to new places, they can stay where they feel comfortable. But what a great chance to learn about travelling than an ACB or NFB convention where there are wonderful people ready and willing to help you and other blind people to give you tips and tricks that work for them. Well, you could just listen to Mosin at Large every week, of course, Petra. Thank you very much. Glad that you enjoyed that virtual convention experience. And it'll be interesting to see the differences between the way that ACB and NFB run their virtual conventions. And now we have email from a disappointed Rebecca Skipper. Oh, no. She says, I am disappointed with the idea that some iOS 14 features such as double-tapping the back of the phone and on-device image recognition will not be supported on the iPhone SE second generation. Wouldn't it make sense to support image recognition on the SE since it is probably going to be called the blindness phone? When Apple indicated that the iPhone SE would have the same processor as the iPhone 11, I presumed that all features of the latest operating system would be available. This fragmented support for specific features is unfortunate, and I have learned my lesson. Never buy a new phone until you learn about the latest features and decide what is the most important. Frankly, Face ID isn't for me, and I'm not willing to give up the SE for features that I might not use every day. Thanks, Rebecca. I'm not sure why you would call the iPhone SE 2 the blindness phone, if that's because it has Touch ID, I don't really support that premise at all. There are lots of blind people who are getting on fine with Face ID. 
There might be a bit of a learning curve at the beginning, but with any new device, particularly a touchscreen smartphone, I think there is a learning curve at the beginning. So it would be a shame, I think, if a myth got out there that somehow blind people are better off with Touch ID by virtue of blindness. That said, I do have some good news for you because I did a little bit of fossicking around after getting your email, and I have been told by a source I consider reliable, I mean, it may be wrong, but it probably isn't, that although the support for the double tapping of the back of the phone and the triple tapping of the back of the phone is not in the present beta of iOS 14, I'm led to believe that it will be in iOS 14 by the time that it is released. So hopefully there's not too much weird product positioning going on. I mean, you can understand, for example, that the camera system in the iPhone SE 2 is not quite as elaborate as the hardware in the iPhone 11, but the processor is the same. And the raise to wake functionality, I think, is in the SE2, isn't it? So, yes, I am told you will get that feature in the SE2. Don't hold me to that, but um, that's what I'm led to believe. Since the beginning of lockdown, many more people have been talking about Microsoft Teams, and rightly so. It's a great collaboration tool, and the audio quality is fantastic on meetings. There are still some accessibility issues pertaining to Microsoft Teams. For example, when someone joins a meeting, I can't hear who is joining. It just says something like two participants have joined the call, which is not only unhelpful, but it's actually literally inaccurate. Still, it's getting there and Microsoft is now stretching the boundaries of Teams. So they want people to use Teams for day-to-day collaboration outside the workplace So you're going to be hearing a lot more about this, and it might be good to start becoming familiar with Teams. It's also a very good job-related skill to have, because if you're going to go and work for an organization that is a Microsoft shop, chances are they either have Teams now or they're going to have Teams very soon. Now, there is a very good webinar that Kelly Ford put together for Microsoft on using Teams with a screen reader. Kelly used JAWS. It was well done. Sadly, and I don't want to be too hard on Microsoft because at least they are engaging in meaningful ways with the blind community. Quite senior people at Microsoft are very approachable and they are trying to teach all of the things that they're doing. And that's really positive because companies like Apple are not doing any such thing, are they? So well done to Microsoft for having a crack. But man, it was frustrating. They had this preamble and then they had these sort of nebulous questions at the end from people who really were surplus to requirements, I think. They should have just let Kelly run for a full hour. You could tell that he had a lot more to say. And I would have found hearing more from Kelly to be incredibly useful. But still, it is the most useful introduction to Microsoft Teams I have yet heard. So I'll try and seek that out and put a link to it in the show notes. If you would like more information on Microsoft Teams, Oren O'Neill has been in touch from the UK. And Sight and Sound, in their next webinar, which is going to be happening, it says here at 2GMT, but I actually think it's 2 British Summertime based on the rest of their conversions, because that is uh, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, which is actually 1 GMT. So I'm going to go with 2 
British summer time, 2 p.m. British summer time on Wednesday. And they say that they've brought together a number of contributors from Ireland, the UK, the Netherlands and the United States to share their experiences of using Microsoft Teams with screen readers on PC and iOS. You will learn how to successfully use the application to create teams and add members, chat and collaborate with colleagues by sharing documents, set up and manage meetings, and make one-to-one calls from your computer. They say they'll also spend time as they demonstrate the application talking about the accessibility features built into Teams and how it can work so well with the JAWS and voiceover screen readers. Registering for this event is not necessary, and the event is actually going to be held using Microsoft Teams itself. One of the really good things about Microsoft Teams is it can be completely browser-based, and in that environment, it's very accessible. So I'm all for minimizing the learning curve to get into these sorts of things. So it should be a really good experience to go to the Microsoft Teams webinar using Teams. If you want to join the session, there's a link to the event itself, which I will put in the show notes. The event itself will go live just before 2 p.m. UK time and Ireland time next Wednesday. If joining from a mobile device, you should install the Microsoft Teams application in advance. And if you have questions that you would like to have addressed during the session, you can email in advance msteams at sightandsound.co.uk. That's msteams at sightandsound.co.uk. They will do their best to answer those questions. It is true. It is time for another spellbinding body bulletin. Hello. Hi, Welcome. Guys. How's it all going? Good. Good. How are you doing? I mustn't grumble. That's good. No one listens if you grumble, no, do they? Have you no noticed that? No one wants that. to hear no. you grumbling. No. I kind of wanted to address Laurel's email. Oh, right. Yeah, that was, a, that was a pretty yeah, heart-wrenching was email, very, wasn't it? Very, very articulate. And sadly... I think in many respects what she experienced at least many years ago, and I don't know how old Laurel is, but... It sounds the, like this happened in the 70s, yes, by what she was norm. doing, the mid-70s. I, the norm. I would say that's that was the norm. But then if that was if it was the norm, how did they determine? Like some people safely made it either to yeah. the mainstream environment or schools for the blind. So how did some people uh, manage I, to end up in such places? Yeah, again, I think it's the quote, and I'm doing air quotes here, experts. I've always had a vision impairment, but I didn't lose my all of my sight till later on. My parents were always told that you couldn't have a developmental problem or issue without having a vision problem. You could be visually impaired but not have cognitive impairment, but you could not be cognitive impairment without vision impairments. Is that actually true? No, I don't think so. No, I, I remember asking an ophthalmologist years later, and no, that's that's not necessarily true. They do make all sorts of judgments, especially, I suppose, with blindisms, which yeah. I think we're more aware of than maybe mm-hmm. we once were. I know of somebody who's very successful, who was quite prone to extreme blindism. I mean, violent rocking and yeah. um, pretty sort of autonomous behavior, let's put it that way, you know, autonomous mm-hmm. behavior. Right. And, um, but were they never taught differently? No, oh, but but you see, but what I'm getting at is they mm-hmm. they were th- their parents were told 
that really the most that could be expected of this person was that they would work in some sort of sheltered workshop type mm-hmm. environment. Yeah. And yet they did not. You know, they're very successful, independent uh, individual. It's just that, you know, I guess some people have a, a greater propensity to those sorts of things, those blindisms than yeah. others. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of it is when a child is born, a parent, especially if they've, they've given birth to a child who is, who has some sort of disability, there's a lot of stuff that goes in with their shot. I mean, they just had a baby. So that's enough, whether it's, you know, disabled or not, that's enough because you're exhausted anyway. And you have this new person in your life. And I've never had children, but that's what I imagine it would be like. So there's so much going on anyway. And especially with moms, because some of them, you know, their hormones are all over the place. They're not sleeping. They're, you know, all sorts of things. And then you have these experts, quote, coming in and saying, okay, you know, the baby's blind. This, it may have some other issues too. We don't know. And, and, and maybe it doesn't. And, and I think that's what, what has happened a lot with families is there, sometimes it is the parent's fault, but sometimes I like to believe that the parent you know, they really want to do what's best for their child. And if they're being told that this is the best they can expect, then what else are they going to do? I mean, especially back in the day when you didn't have the internet and you didn't have consumer groups. I mean, I remember there was a, there's a place in Tennessee, I think they've closed it down now called the Clover Bottom. It's on the, um, the old Andrew Jackson estate. And it's been historically kind of the, um, where they put people who were developmentally challenged over the years. It was an institution, basically. And one of our history teachers in high school, because the School for the Blind is, is on the same, is on, near the same property. One of our history teachers told us when he worked there that there were people that had been put there as children, as babies. There was nothing wrong with them except vision impairment. And they're in their 60s now, you mm. know. And, and you think about how horrible that is, that these are people who never were able to lead an independent life because of of some social worker somewhere who decided that this was okay. And I see that even in the modern times where blindness professionals make arbitrary decisions that are not in the best interest of children. I also think it's so vital that we, as a minority, that we start telling our stories and we recount this history and we acknowledge that there actually has been a lot of oppression and injustice that has taken place to blind people over the years. And we must not be silenced. We mustn't be shut up by the parasites that I talk about who claim there's no discrimination and nothing's ever happened to me. So what do you want about? And you hear stories like Laurel's and it makes you realize we've got to tell those stories. We've we've got to make sure that we take control of our own destinies and that those sorts of things never happen again. But. It's a complicated area because in a way this segues into some of the things that Adi was talking about because on the one hand, I think there there are issues that really take their toll on a blind person in terms of just constantly being exposed to discrimination and misunderstanding and that does weigh on you. I mean, sometimes if you if you really are trying to make the world a better place – it can be very hard 
to do that without getting bitter. I mean, I like to think that I can point to quite a string of tangible differences that I've made as an advocate, laws that have changed and attitudes and practices that have changed that I have had a hand in. And I'm proud of that. But I also see a lot of blind people who feel like it seemed to me like they're constantly at war with the world and are looking for offense. Yeah. So it's a difficult balance. It's that's a, and, and I think that's with any minority group or any sub community. You know, you need to start in school with kids and, and teaching them how to, to advocate for themselves in a way that is going to get their point across, but is also going to be diplomatic. You know, I agree. I think and, and, self-advocacy is one of the most important skills that you can teach a mm -hmm. minority member. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that it's going to solve everything no, because sometimes it, you're it still going to will, find issues. But, you know. um, but being able to articulate one's needs, it's really important, I think, and and a lot of training is not provided. No, and I and I think that – and people argue about, well, I'm I'm so tired of being the ambassador for every blind person in the world, and and that's not yeah. easy. You no, know, you isn't. don't want to be. It's people think that because you have certain requirements that's that all else. that you're 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 yes. representative of all blind people, and, yeah. and many minorities have that. Problem. Oh yeah, it's yeah. like well, no, I'm not yeah. speaking for the entire yeah. Hispanic <laughs> race. You know, I'm sorry. Yeah. Why, that's, why can't I just be accepted as an individual with yeah. preferences? You know, oh, the last blind person that we had here did this. Said yes. That. <laughs> well, excuse me. So I'm what do you want about? I'm willing to bet that some of these quote blind experts that go out and talk to families probably aren't giving them the whole story too. That's why it's so important to have a blind person that, or at least link them up. And I'm not saying that a sighted person can't do things like that, but that's why it's so important to be able to link a parent or someone up with someone else. That now, can... this is one of the interesting things. When, when I first learned about what the NFB was doing, when I really started becoming aware of the NFB in the late 80s, probably, I was originally quite shocked by what I perceived to be a fundamental conflict of interest. And I, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm completely okay with it because – if you are a consumer advocacy organization and you're also providing services and there's a problem that one consumer or a range of consumers perceive with that service, who do you go to if the advocate is also the provider? Yeah. You know, who's, who's watching the store? Who's yeah, taking care of the care? So, so I, but, but, <laughs> but that said, you look at almost every minority and you have acceptance of the view that the best people to solve the problems and confront the challenges of a given minority are the members of that given well, minority. Of course it is. So every time we have a blind person going out there to meet with the parent of a blind baby who doesn't know what to expect and everything, I think that is very powerful. And what you sometimes hear, and, and in my various roles over the years, I've heard this from sighted professionals. And let's not forget, the sighted professionals, by virtue of their sightedness, are getting knowledge of blindness secondhand. Mm -hmm. The only way they get that knowledge is to watch other blind people, right? Yeah. So why not go to the source? But you often hear sighted people. And I remember speaking to a large group of parents of blind children and a sighted professional saying to those parents, don't expect that your child can achieve 
what Jonathan Mosen has achieved because he's one of those super blinds or super blinks or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's it's. <sighs> I mean, that would that would be like me as a horse owner sitting in a group and having I don't know Bill Farish come in there, who's one of or, you know one of the top owners and breeders in the country. Say, well, don't expect anyone in here to be like me. You know, I mean, that that's that puts the kibosh on it. You can be whatever you want to be. But if you're told you're never going to be that, then, you know, you're not. The because, tyranny of low expectations. I mean, it's, it's so, terrible. And, and it's, in that regard, I, I, I am interested in what, should we say, firewalls are put in place in the NFB context. But sure, if the best people to provide services to blind people are rather blind people. What did you think of the ACB virtual convention, which I heard none of at all, but you were uh, you were virtually I did, attending? I did attend a lot of it. I think they did the best they could under the circumstances. I mean, how they pulled it off, I don't know. I mean, it was um, – and they've I had – We were sitting at the dinner table, and I did hear a little bit yesterday, actually, and they had the Sky – was it what, <laughs> Sky Dogs of America, yeah. yeah. They were doing – And they were, they were using this TTS, and I have to say it was a very human-like yeah, TTS. I think it was human. one of the new Microsoft it, ones. It doesn't And we listened for a while, employee. and Bonnie kept saying, is that – is that human speech or is it not? And then I had a listen and I thought, no, this is one of those new Microsoft voices like you get in Immersive Reader when you use Microsoft Edge. That's definitely a uh, a TTS, but boy, they're getting harder and harder. It was to. really, I mean, it, it, I was kind of getting freaked out about it because it reminded <laughs> me of the science fiction. I think it was Buck Rogers. Greetings, Earthlings. One time I saw and it was like, welcome to Sinaloa. Wow. You are now under the laws of this planet, you know, and it's like, you know, it was very strange, but yeah, it was good. Um, They reached a lot more people than they would if if it had been live, you know, physical, but you, you listen to this and you, um, there was a guy from humanware that was describing the tables and kind of like what you would see in the actual exhibit hall, the three tables. So is it one of those Mushroom FM special events, yes. you know, like the cruise, you know, yeah, we're, exactly. we're, we're, we're concocting this visual yeah, picture Yeah, and he was, he was trying to – he was doing that. But <laughs> definitely you – I hope that both are back next year. I, 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 one thing I think that we've all kind of learned from the whole COVID-19 is – you can do these things and it's good to have that option. So maybe next year they will have more virtual things and zoom that people who can't, con- who can't attend the convention will be able to participate in. Yeah. Cause, cause there's been this prevailing view of oh, we mustn't do too much of this. Otherwise people won't come, but I don't think that's true. I think there's still a good number of people who would prefer that as Petra was saying earlier, you know, the camaraderie of exactly. getting together. And and- it, it is weird because you, you, you think about anyone that's been to the convention and you like going to the exhibit hall because you can interact with uh, the vendors. You can talk to people and, you, there is a lot of that. It, it, talking again about learning from things. I mean, NFB does a lot with families and children. And if you go to an NFB convention, you see all the little kids tapping around the hotel with their little canes on some sort of scavenger hunt or whatever. They can't do that virtually. I mean, I'm sure they figured yeah. out something to do virtually, but it's not the same as physically being there. <laughs> 
to contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin!